Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, listen, uh, before we begin, I want to give a, a little quick disclaimer. Uh, I don't have scientific data to back up what I'm about to say. It's simply a personal opinion, but I do believe it to be true. And so let me just, let me just get this off my chest. Okay, here we go. Most people, when they hear the alarm go off, they don't get up out of bed in the morning and just out of the blue say to themselves, you know, today I'm going to make decisions that will ruin my life. I don't have any data. I'm just saying, I think people don't do that. As they lather up in the shower, most people don't think to themselves, I'm going to blow it today. Most people don't pour their cereal and just poof, decide to put work over their family or poof, decide to get greedy or make up their mind to cheat their way through life or even just nonchalantly make the decision to gossip about somebody else. Most Christ followers don't walk out the front door saying, I would love to sin today. In fact, when you and I have tasted the after, the after effects, the bitter aftertaste of sin, we usually don't say, that was my plan all along. Those of us that feel the pain of an affair, lost everything because of greed, or, or, or they, 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 you don't lose everything and just say, yeah, that's the way I planned it out. Instead, we usually hear things like, how did I let this happen? How did I get here? It's like the teenager who gets involved with the wrong friends and a few months later, they find themselves handcuffed in the back of a police car and they say, where did I go wrong? As though just poof, it just happened overnight. Like they accidentally fell into sin. Don't fall into temptation. It can almost feel that way, but that's not, that's not how sin works. We don't just like, whoops, fall into it. Rarely does anybody just fall into anything. It's more of a subtle road of decisions. A, a subtle uh, element of thoughts and actions, yeses and nos, that carry us to a place where we sin, where we fall short of the glory of God, where our path is not the path God has planned for us. And that journey, that subtle road has a name. And the name of the road is temptation, the road of temptation. Now, temptation in and of itself is not a sin. If you're being tempted by something, guess what? You're breathing. It's normal to have temptation. But it is the avenue, the crossroads of temptation avenue, where, where we either fall short of the glory of God or stand firm in the power of his might. And there's a crossroads that we all come to where we either get paid in the wages of sin or we store up treasures in heaven where we either allow our circumstances to conquer us or where you and I become more than conquerors. It's a hard battle. It's a hard fight. And it's a consistent fight. And you and I are going to fight Temptation Avenue. We are, we're, our, our, our cars simply can, can pull to the right when it comes to exiting on Temptation Avenue because we're human and because there's a real enemy that wants to see you take that exit off of God's plan. Every person in this room has and will stand at the crossroads on Temptation Avenue. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read it to you. Don't be so naive self-confident. You're not exempt. You can fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. Cultivate what? God confidence. Leaning not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, submitting to him. That's God confidence. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. You are not alone. 
All you need to remember is God will never let you down. Through the big, through the small, through the tough, through the good. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. The words of the Apostle Paul a couple thousand years ago, and it's words for us today in 2017. And it's this little, this, this scripture that brings us to the short story in the Old Testament that beautifully displays what Paul is teaching in this verse. And it's a story about a larger-than-life character who's in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. He's mentioned only very quickly. His life is much bigger than this one story, but you see, you see glimpses of greatness in the middle of adversity within this young man's life and the life of Joseph. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 39 if you have your Bible or you can follow along on the screen. Let me set up Genesis 39 for you because it starts pretty abruptly. Basically... We have Abraham, the father of, of the nation of Israel. Okay, the, the, the father of many nations. The promise of God that Abraham, even when he was 75, he was going to give birth to a son. He hadn't had any sons yet. At 99, finally that promise comes true and he gives birth to his son, Isaac. Tries to do it his own way. Has, has sex with a maidservant, Hagar, and they have Ishmael. And when you try and put God's plan in your own, in your own hands, you're, you're never going to end up with God's best for your life. Abraham tried that, and we have Ishmael and Isaac. You know the Middle East is still at war between those two sons? It all traces back from, from Palestinians and, 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 and Israelites, all traces back to Isaac and Ishmael. It's this big story, huge story of life starting right there. Well, Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob gets the inheritance. Jacob has 12 sons. Here are their names, and I'm not going to give them all to you. Jacob later changes his name. God changes his name to Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. And those 12 sons are considered the 12 tribes of Judah. His 11th son, he loves his 11th son because it's his firstborn son of his, of his wife that he truly loved. He had two wives and the, the wife he loved couldn't get pregnant. And finally she gets pregnant on the 11th son. She finally gets pregnant herself and gives birth to Joseph. And let's be honest, all the other boys, when you got 12 kids, you can't, not, you know, you're not going to the Galleria to shop for clothes, Right? It's Payless shoe stores right there, baby. It's Payless. Like everybody else got Payless, but Jordan, you know, like Joseph, he got Jordans. He did. He got, he got Air Jordans. Everybody else just got a coat from Burlington Coat Factory. But like Joseph was like Banana Republic. And it was all multicolored, so it was in fashion no matter what season you're in. Now the youngest of the youngest, Benjamin, he was, he was great too. But Joseph, I mean, he was the apple of Jacob's eye. And Joseph was early on, heard from God, had dreams and visions because he was going to do big, bold things. God had big plans for him. But can I just say, be careful who you share your visions and your dreams with. It could get you in trouble if you share them too prematurely. So Joseph's just kid out with his brothers and they're, you know, hauling hay, putting hay on the back of the, on the, back of the tractor trailer. And he's saying, guys, you'll never guess. I just had a dream. It was weird. It was crazy. There's like this sun and this moon and there are these 10, these 11 stars and the sun, and I'm standing there and the sun and moon bowed down to me and the 11 stars bowed down to me. What do you think that means? He's talking about his mom and dad and his brothers. And they're like, Joseph, shut up and haul hay. You know, you remember Kevin um, and Buzz on Home Alone? Buzz was the older brother. He's like, get out of my room, Kevin. And Kevin just loved to be, yeah, Joseph is Kevin. And his older brother's like, get out of my face, Kevin. 
Another story about all these stalks of wheat bowing down to his stalk of wheat. And those brothers, they're already jealous because he's got the cool Banana Republic. He's, he's got the cool Jordans. His dad favors him more than anybody else. I mean, you can tell he's a favorite. Anybody ever grew up with a favorite? Oh, put your hands down. Put your hands down. The problem is you wouldn't be even able to raise your hand. Like, no, I was treated fairly than everybody else. But if your other siblings were here like, no, they were the favorite. I drove a broke down Ford Aerostar minivan and my, my younger sister gets this cool two door sports car Toyota. Don't tell me there weren't favorites in our house. Please. And my, my middle brother, he didn't get to drive. You know, that's how the middle is, you know, middle son. Okay, all that being said, the boys band together, most of the boys, and they're going to kill him. One of them speaks up and says, we can't kill him. Let's just get rid of him. And so while they're just hanging out, they throw him in a well. They, uh, slave traders come in. They sell him. He gets sold into slavery, goes into Egypt, and this is where we pick up the story. Ready? Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites. Look at that. How things come full circle. Ishmael lights who had taken him there. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Joseph just wasn't with the Lord. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant, his right-hand man to Potiphar. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his house and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the house of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was every, on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, look at this scripture. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. Sound familiar? <laughs> and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, hey, I added the, that's not, that's not in scripture. come to bed with me. But he refused. Here's what he says. With me in charge, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph, look, day after day, relentless, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. She called her household servants, look, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. When Potiphar heard the story, he burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. 
He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph. Do you see a thread? The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Let's pray. Father, the next few moments, we're going to pull from this story timeless truths that apply to Joseph and Potiphar and Mrs. Potiphar and apply to us in every day. <sighs> May we have ears to hear. And God, right now, <clears throat> even talking about this, I know there's been tension in some shoulders already. I bring up sexual stuff and people get tense. They start fidgeting or they start moving or they start getting uncomfortable. They start thinking about this or they think about that. Or they, it, God, I pray that you would speak to the room through this message, that by the time we leave here, we will not just be hearers of the word, but doers of your word. Because the, word, the person who hears and does is wise. The person who hears and does nothing is foolish. May we be wise today and have the courage to implement your word in our lives. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God, and everybody said amen. Amen. There was nothing the boy could do to defend himself. One bully grabs the boy from behind on his hair and tackles him to the ground, while another bully pins the lad's face to the dirt with his knee. Then there are eight other bullies that rip his clothes off, and he tries to fight them off, but his, even his well-built 19-year-old body is no match for the older, stronger boys. And this isn't just some gang that blindsides some kid in a back alley. These bullies are his own flesh and blood. They are his brothers. And they pull Joseph off the ground half naked, and the last thing Joseph remembers is the sensation of falling backwards several feet and <clears throat> hitting the bottom of the cistern, everything goes black. Hours later, Joseph wakes up, his head throbbing, massive concussion, hair and face matted with blood. And as he slowly pulls himself up, he realizes he's no longer in the field or in the cistern. Instead, he finds himself in the melodic movement of the back of an ox cart that has been retrofitted as some sort of makeshift mobile prison cell. His hands and feet are tied, his mouth is dry, and Joseph, the spry young visionary, the, the boy with dreams, finds himself in the custody and the property of a band of traveling slave traders, the Ishmaelites. So after a month of slow travel, the slave traders find their way to the heart of Egypt and to the downtown trade center. And with a few words and, and a little bartering, Joseph is sold into the house of a high-ranking official in the kingdom of Egypt. Joseph is now the property of Potiphar, the captain of the guard, the chief bodyguard to the Pharaoh himself. It sounds like a dark moment for Joseph. Sounds almost like the end of the story instead of the beginning of the story. But the Bible says, and it's very important in your story and mine, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. No matter how deep your well is, no matter who has turned on you, regardless of how bad the wound is, even when your own flesh and blood turn against you, the Lord is with you. And the Lord was with Joseph. Potiphar, he ain't no dummy. 
You don't become the captain of the guard by being an idiot. He saw something in Joseph. He buys him at a discounted price and immediately he begins to put Joseph to work. And here's an interesting note in this whole scripture. Joseph doesn't wallow in self-pity. He doesn't complain about his situation. He doesn't look up into the heavens and shake his fist at the stars and yell, how could you God put me in this situation? No, he makes the most of his circumstances and he works hard for Potiphar. He doesn't give it a half-baked effort. He works hard. And you know what he does as he works hard? The Lord blesses everything he puts his hand on. It was like might. It's like a golden touch. Potiphar starts Joseph in the garden. And before you know it, Joseph's bringing in tomatoes the size of bowling balls. Where'd you get those? Oh, just, just plowing in the garden. Potiphar puts him in the garage. And before you know it, Joseph has Potiphar's old Chevy pickup running again. Are you kidding me? That sucker cranked up. Joseph like, man, it was quite a deal, but hey, the Lord was with me. Potiphar takes him out of the yard in the garage, puts him in a suit, and before you know it, Joseph starts turning profits with Potiphar's small business ventures. Before long, Joseph is running the deal. He's in charge of the house. The head chef, the chief maid, the entire custodial staff, they're all reporting to Joseph. Now, I want you to write this down. One element on this road to Temptation Avenue. Number one. When everything is going great, the next exit might just be Temptation Avenue. Now, I'm not saying everything's going great in Joseph's life. He's a stinking slave. But he's blessing Joseph even in the midst of his adversity, even in the midst of his trial, even in the midst of being a slave in a house. God's blessing him. And just when things begin to go good and look good, watch it. That's when the enemy loves to tempt us. After a great victory, after a great presentation at the office, after a special anniversary, after church, when everything seems to be going good, watch it. The very next exit on our journey could be Temptation Avenue. And everything was going great for Adam and Eve. All the garden to themselves. They didn't want for anything. They didn't have to cook. They just didn't have to do laundry or iron clothes. Didn't have to wear clothes. Things were great. But the next stop, Temptation Avenue. Mighty King David wins a great victory against the Samaritans. Samarians. Decides to chill at the royal palace. Checks out the view of the kingdom from the palace roof late at night. Notices Foxy Bathsheba. Next stop. Temptation Avenue. Jesus is baptized by John, marks the beginning of his three-year ministry on earth. The sky splits open. A voice from heaven says, this is my boy. I am well pleased with him. Jesus walks into the desert to fast and pray. Next stop, Temptation Avenue. The difference between Jesus and David and Adam and Eve is when Jesus was tempted, he was sinless. He took on the perfection. So you don't have to be perfect, but you lean into him when you deal with things. And he gives us grace to cover the gap between you and him. And the life you're living and the life you could live, he gives us grace and, and bridges that gap. You're pretty aware of the enemy's devices when you're at the bottom of the barrel. It's when you're living at the high life, when things are golden. Watch it. The next exit might just be Temptation Avenue. Joseph's got this house of Potiphar running like a Swiss clock. Foods on the table at the right time. Laundry is folded just right. Potiphar's 401k is earning double-digit interest. He's young. He's confident. When guests come over, they go to sit down to a meal. He claps his hands and all the servants start saying, Be our guest. Be our guest. Put our service. Plates flying. 
He's young, he's confident, he's smart, he's well-built, he's a good-looking dude. And after a while, Mrs. Potiphar, or Hotifer, <laughs> begins to notice this young, good-looking, well-built man who's running a tight ship. I mean, she had asked Potiphar like six times, when are you going to fix the TV in the den? And she walks into the den one day, and the TV's on. And it's her favorite show. And she's like, you finally fixed it, Potiphar. Oh, where is Potiphar? And Joseph's like, oh, it was, there's no problem. That's no problem, Mrs. Potiphar. I, I took care of it. She's been complaining about those weeds in the garden. And the next day, she sees Joseph hauling these trash bags to the front of the yard. He pulled all the weeds. It's looking clean, fresh mulch. She also notices Potiphar hadn't been around much lately. And so as Joseph shows the new employee how to clean the deep end of the pool, Mrs. Robinson, I mean Mrs. Cougar, I mean Mrs. Potiphar, she's tanning poolside. She's tanning poolside reading the Egyptian Enquirer, sipping her daiquiri, and as Joseph shows the new recruit how to check the chlorine levels in the pool, she can't help but stare through her dark Gucci sunglasses and think, Mm-hmm. I like that Joe Joe. <laughs> now I want to pause and make another statement, number two. Be careful. You possess the power to inadvertently lead others down Temptation Avenue. You have the power to lead others down that temptation. And many times we're so focused about ourselves fleeing temptation that we don't realize the inadvertent collateral damage we can do when we lead others down that path. Here's a question I have about the story. Where in the world is Potiphar? Well, the Bible says, is very clear. We know where Potiphar is. He left in Joseph's care, the Bible says, everything he had. And with Joseph in charge, get this, with Joseph in charge, Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. That's the Bible. I mean, giving responsibility to your servant is one thing. Trusting Joseph with the affairs of his estate is one thing. But going completely AWOL? It's like he didn't just delegate his authority. He dumped the authority. He completely handed it over to Joseph, jumped in his convertible, and he drove to the nearest golden corral. As Potiphar licks his lips and lustfully eyes the chocolate cake at the all-you-can-eat buffet, Mrs. Potiphar licks her lips and eyes the young man who has assumed the image and authority of the man of the house. All right, husbands, wives, let's talk for a second. Let me tell you something this morning. Wives, let me speak to you. Husbands, you too. There are responsibilities you have in your home and in your marriage that are yours and yours alone. They cannot be delegated and they cannot be neglected. They are your responsibilities. And if you don't take care of those responsibilities, someone else may be in line to take care of them. Husbands, only you can be the intimate confidant of your wife. No one else should fill that primary position. Wives, only you can be the primary affirmer of your husband. 
to lift him up. Listen, everyone, only you are responsible for your personal relationship with Christ. No one else can love him for you. Dads, only you can be a dad to your kids. They're real dad to your kids. Wives, never before, listen close, never before in the history of the world has there ever been such a creative, multifaceted assault on a man's sexual integrity? Wives, when it comes to sexuality, you are your husband's only pure option. Only option and only pure option. Don't neglect or inadvertently delegate that responsibility. And all the married men just like, well, I'm taking notes. Where are the fill in the blanks here? <laughs> Glory to God. Preach, pastor, preach. Now shut up for a second, husbands, and listen. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Don't be like Potiphar. Just concern yourself with stuff, with the food you eat. Don't just concern yourself with the deer lease. Don't just concern yourself with sports center and the corporate ladder. If you don't concern yourself with the needs of your wife, someone else could notice those needs. Additionally, your spouse could eventually seek out some way to see those needs fulfilled. Husbands, your ears should be the go-to location where your wife can share her most intimate issues, insecurities, dreams, and concerns. It shouldn't be her mother's ear. It should be your ear. It needs to be yours. It shouldn't be her boss's ear. It's your ear. Your arms should be the arms she runs to, he runs to, when they need to know everything's going to be okay. And if your arms have a sandwich in one hand and guns and beer trophies in the other, Without considering what's most important, you may inadvertently lead someone else down Temptation Avenue. Now, 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 pause, back up the truck, beep, beep. Don't misunderstand me. You and you alone are responsible for your actions. You cannot blame your sin on someone else. You can't blame your sin on your spouse. You can't blame your sin on this or that or the other but we don't sin in a vacuum. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Your actions have the power to cause someone else to stumble into Temptation Avenue. And while some might be quick to dismiss Potiphar's wife as just a, some sex-craved housewife, my heart kind of goes out to her, you know? I kind of feel bad for, for Mrs. Potiphar. She's got all the money she wants, all the help she needs. Her husband's only concerned himself with food. She's neglected and ignored by her husband. He's neglected his responsibilities. And I, I could see her saying, if, if he won't give me the attention I need. And so this lonely, bored, rich woman is thrown into the company of an unusually handsome and attractive man. The Dwayne The Rock Johnson of the ancient world. <laughs> And Mrs. Potiphar realizes that what she wanted out of life and what she's been getting out of life are two different things. And she just can't get Joseph out of her brain. She's at a crossroads. This isn't just a fleeting thought. This isn't just a quick poolside fantasy of, of Mrs. Potiphar. After a while, she approaches Jojo. And look, 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 look. Mrs. Potiphar knows what she wants, who she wants, and when she wants it. And if she were alive today, there's no doubt she would star in the new Bravo television series, Real Housewives of the Middle East. You don't know who each character is. They're all covered up except their eyes, but it's a great show. <laughs> so she doesn't send him an anonymous letter with a lipstick kiss. She doesn't write him a poem or cook his favorite meal one night. No, she goes for the jugular. The Bible says she comes right up to Joseph and says, come to bed with me. 
No talk. No, <laughs> you're so funny. <laughs> hey, you. Mm-mm. Come to bed with me. Now, Joseph isn't some goofy preteen. He's an adolescent 19-year-old who knows what a woman looks like. And Potiphar is a high-ranking official, so Mrs. Potiphar probably has the makings of a trophy wife. The temptation certainly could be there. But the Bible says he refuses. He refuses. Write this down, number three. The bright lights of Temptation Avenue can be resisted when you know who you are and whose you are. And as elementary as that sounds, as even I would say churchy as that sounds, this is the single most issue that leads most people into sin and habitual sin. It's not remembering who we are and whose we are and living an identity outside of God and his identity for us. And we take on this identity of family and trials and circumstances and wants and needs and, 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 and items that we like, stuff that's attractive to us. And we fill that all in and we begin, that becomes our identity. And Jesus is saying, you're way beyond this external stuff. And what your mom always said, what your dad always said, what you experienced as a child, you, you are way beyond that. You are a son and daughter of the king and you've got to know who you are in that, not who you are in this world and whose you are. And here's what Joseph says. Here's how we know this is so true. He says, look, Mrs. Potiphar, your husband is my master. He's put me in charge of the house. He's put me in charge of the money. He's put me in charge of the staff. He hasn't withheld anything from me except you because you're his wife. And here's what he says. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, now hear this closely, okay? Just get this little bitty nugget of truth right here in this scripture. He, he reads this, this, all these five or six things that have to do with Potiphar and Mrs. Potiphar. And you would think that he ends the story by saying, how could I do such a thing and sin against Potiphar? Because he's talking about how Potiphar is the man of the house. I can't do these things and sin against the master. <laughs> because the master wasn't the master. At the end of the day, Potiphar wasn't... The last say in Joseph's life. He said, how can I do this and sin against God? He understood that he wasn't just a servant in Potiphar's house. He was a servant in the kingdom of God. And it wasn't about what Potiphar was given to him. It was about what God would give to him. It was this humbled servitude to, to, to God himself. Notice he doesn't say, I don't want to do this and get caught. I don't want to do this and make your husband mad. I've worked hard for this job. I know what, what the slave block feels like. I don't want, uh, I'm not doing that. I know you're, you're, you're nice and all, but no. Joseph understood a key component of life. Joseph knew he was a servant to Potiphar, but more important, importantly, he, the greater impact on Joseph's decisions was his servant to the Most High God. He knew who he was and whose he was. There are things we should and should not do. Listen close. Things we should and should not do because we are leaders. Because you're a leader. There are things you should and should not do because you are a mom. There are things you should and should not do because you are a dad. Or you are a wife. Or you are a husband. And by the sheer role that you're living in, you should not do those things. But those relationships should not carry the most important weight in the decisions you make. Because it is the relationship with Jesus, first and foremost, that comes first. So Joseph says, not because I'm a servant to Potiphar, but because I'm God's servant, I, I can't do this. 
with you. So how did Potiphar's wife respond to that? Did she say, oh, you know, oh, it's so embarrassing. What was I thinking? You're right, Joseph. <laughs> just don't bring this up, okay? Let's just, you know, here, here, have a tea. She, she, she didn't say that. The Bible says she was relentless. Day after day, she chased him down like the cougar she was. The perfume got a little thicker. The outfits got a little tighter. The skirts got a little shorter. The lipstick got a little brighter. Joseph, should I wear my hair up or down today? <laughs> Joseph, how do you like my new jeans? They don't make me look fat, do they, Joseph? Don't answer that, Joseph, no matter who you are. <sighs> day after day, outfit after outfit, she tries to sweet talk Joseph into the bedchamber, and day after day, he refused. What a guy, but can I tell you, it's not just emotional willpower. The Lord was with Joseph. And when we walk the road, surrendered to Christ, we don't walk alone. And some of you, you know, you know better, but you've, you've veered off and you've wanted to walk your own path. The Lord was with Joseph and Joseph was with the Lord and he refused. You know, William Congreve penned a very popular saying. You probably know the latter half, then you know the front half. But here's what he said. This is a quote from William Congreve. Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. And Mrs. Potiphar was feeling a little bit scorned. So one day, so one day she shows up to the house and she gives the whole staff a coffee break. She starts handing out $5 gift cards to Starbucks. And she says, go down to Starbucks, enjoy, come in a couple hours late. They're like, thanks, Mrs. Potiphar. And the house empties out and they go down to the fresh market and they go to Starbucks. Later on, a few minutes later, Joseph shows up. He's just picked up the mail out of the mailbox. He walks in through the front door into the foyer and he's, he's sifting through the bills and the junk mail. And he, he lays down the junk mail on the little table in the foyer. And he notices that like the buzz of the house isn't buzzing. It's kind of quiet, a little too quiet. So he's got those bills in his hand and he walks from the foyer and he walks into the living room and there in the living room is only one person and it's Hotifer. And she's standing next to the shelf. She's just got eye contact. He's looking at her and she's looking at him. He's like, mm -hmm. she just pulls back like this, slides a record right off the shelf, takes the skin of the record, flips it across the room. She's holding that record. She flips it in her hands. She's looking at Joe. Lays it on the record player. Takes the needle and when the needle hits the vinyl. She takes a remote, points it at the fireplace. Now, the first time she approached Joseph, she said, come to bed with me. 
This time she says, come to bed with me. She grabs him and throws him to the bed. She's got his face pinned into the pillow with her knee. She rips his robe off and Joseph starts having flashbacks of being thrown into the well by his brothers. It's like PTSD. All right, okay, okay, okay. I don't know how. <laughs> uh, it's a little peek into my brain, sorry. You ought to read the Bible, it's really fun. It's really fun. I don't know how he does it, but somehow he escapes her chokehold and he flees the house. And according to the cultural dress at the time, he probably ran out naked. And now the lustful passion Mrs. Potiphar had for Joseph has turned into hysterical rage. Hell had no fury like a woman scorned. How could he deny me like this? How could he do this to me? He's a slave. I'm his master. She's blinded by the pain of her failed proposition. And now she just wants to destroy Joseph. She yells at the head chef and the chief maid. She calls out the second story window to the gardener. They all come rushing to her side and she says, that young man tried to rape me. She waits a few hours until Potiphar arrives. He's got a ketchup stain on his white shirt that barely fits him anymore. And she says, while you were out chowing down on hot wings, your servant tried to rape me. And the Bible says Potiphar burned with anger. He was ticked. You don't want to make an enemy out of the chief guard of Pharaoh. There's no doubt this guy has slit some throats and scalped some heads. And while he may be a bit out of shape, he's still someone you wouldn't want to see angry. Now, who's he upset with? Is it Joseph? Could it be, he, he, could it be upset with his wife? Maybe this isn't her first endeavor. Could he be mad at the situation because it meant losing his best guy and now he's going to have to say no to the guys for poker night every Thursday and have to start paying his bills again? One assumes he's enraged at Joseph, but he sure doesn't act like it. I would expect Potiphar to grab a few of his best men, hunt the naked teenager down, and beat him up right there in the dusty street of Egypt. That's how the captain of the king's guard rolls. But that's not what he does. He takes Joseph and puts him in prison. It's not even the pit of despair or the evil, dark, torturous dungeon. Potiphar puts him in the king's prison, which is more like a, mo a motel with bars on the windows. It wasn't skeletons and chains, but it was, it was a holding cell in prison nonetheless. Here's the final thought on temptation number four. And I want you to hear this. If, I, if you don't hear anything else today, and hopefully you have, I want you to get this now. It'll help you. It's not comfortable. It, it fits awkward, but it's right. Okay? We live in a culture that is mesmerized by quick results, by fast rewards. Lose this weight in this many days. Microwaves, Facebook, instant connections. Do it right now. Don't delay. Got to have it done right now. I mean, time is staying. Only 12 more until this offer is up. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Better do it. We live in this high-paced buzz. And because of it, we deal with temptation this way. Number four, those who resist the bright lights of Temptation Avenue are rarely rewarded by the world. But they are rewarded. You know, usually you don't get a cookie for walking away from temptation. You don't get this huge physical, tangible reward when you do the right thing. But you are rewarded. 
You're rewarded with integrity. You're rewarded with character development. You're, you're rewarded with just doing the God thing and the Lord being with you and you being with the Lord. But, but, but unfortunately, there's just no gold medal for overcoming temptation on a daily basis. But it's so important in our life. And what we want is when we, when we mess up and when we, we, we allow temptation to, to lead us into sin, what we really want is a quick fix from it. We want the circumstances to be, they're going to be hot. They're going to sever some stuff. They're going to be quick. But let's get over that and let's move on. And, and, and that usually doesn't happen very often. How interesting. The young man shares God-given dreams with his brothers. And you know what they do? They hate him for it. They throw him down a well and sell him into slavery for it. He stands up for what is right in the home of his master and he's accused of rape over it. He's thrown in prison because of it. It's almost, listen this close, it's almost like the consequences of doing what is right are more brutal sometimes than the consequences of just giving in to the bright lights of temptation. Sometimes it seems like the wrong thing is easier to deal with than trying to do the right thing. Hey, hey, listen to this. It's a church anyone can come to. We have marriages, we have singles, we have widowed, we have divorced, we have people going through a divorce, we have people trying to restore marriages, we have people living together and you're not married. Now let me say something to you. When we live together outside of God's plan of, of marriage, there's just, you're just living underneath, you're not living underneath the umbrella of the covenant of God. When, when, you're, when you're living together without, without coming under the covenant of, of marriage. It's not about what the governor says, it's just, or, or what, the, what the state of Texas says. It's just submitting to God and honoring him. He created marriage and we say, hey, we're going to live together married. Now, here's what happens though. When a couple's like that, when they, when they say, oh, we need to get things right. Sometimes it can be more difficult, more costly, more painful to go through this process over here and make things right. And so what happens is we just kind of do what we've always done. Can I, can I say to you, if you ever are in that position, boyfriend and girlfriend, you're living together, you want to get married, you want to make things right, and you go through a couple of counseling sessions with us, you know, we'll marry you. You don't have to pay for a pastor. You don't have to, uh, we'll, we'll meet you out in the backyard and do that for you and make things right. You want a wedding cake and you can't afford it and that's what's keeping you from finally having your day? Man, I'll, 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 Janet and I personally will buy you a wedding cake. But sometimes doing the right thing is harder than just doing the thing. But there's reward in heaven for that. And there's character development that comes when we do the hard thing when it's the right thing. Sometimes it seems like it's just easier though. The woman knows she's crossed the line with her coworker. They've already stolen a kiss from each other one night in the parking lot. That's all that happens. You know you shouldn't be hanging out with them, but the pain of cutting it off and trying to explain all that and get through the restoration, all that. Ugh. So you do the wrong thing and hold it back because it's easier. And that's the challenge of the crossroads of Temptation Avenue. When we choose the wide lane and give in, we sin and sin separates us. And we're walking, we're walking with a hamstring issue. Joseph got this. He understood this. The rewards of the world did not come to Joseph for standing up for what is right. He stood up for what was right and he was thrown into prison for it. But he's a giant. He's a giant of faith. Some of you are dealing with prisons in your own life. You wish you could have stood up for what was right, but the, it's like this, it didn't, like stuff still hurts. You're doing the right thing, but like things still aren't working out the way you wanted them. And I'm just saying to you, <laughs> yeah, Jesus stood up for what was right and he was crucified. 
But because he knows your pain, he promises you, you won't be alone in this journey. Don't look for your rewards on earth. Look for your rewards in heaven. The road you travel doesn't have to be traveled alone. The Lord was with Joseph on the road from the pit to the Potiphar's house. The Lord was with Joseph from the, from the road from Potiphar's house to the prison house. The Lord was with him. And so when you face the crossroads, when the world tries to put a knee in your face and pin your face into the dirt with brighter lipstick or stronger perfume or you name the issue, you don't have to fall short. And if you do fall short, you can get back up again with his grace. You can know who you are and whose you are just as he was with Joseph. The Lord will be with you. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I promise you the right thing isn't always the easy thing, but the right thing is the God thing. And maybe you're here today and you've been struggling with temptation. You've been struggling with issues. You know, it doesn't have to be a sexual thing. It could be just like you living your own life and not surrendering to Jesus. You won't ever live the life you're destined to live without surrendering completely to Jesus as the center of your life and the savior of your life. And if you're here and you haven't done that, you haven't surrendered to Jesus to be your savior, to truly be the, the conductor of your symphony the center of your life. If that's you and you say, I, I need to ask Jesus to be the center or come back to him because maybe you've drifted. If that's you, it's not about you leaving this room and figuring everything out and you biting your bottom lip. It's simply about you believing he is who he says he is and trusting in him. That's the step. It sounds easy because it is because he paid for all of it. He did all the front work for you. He did all the sacrifice and the death and the resurrection for you. So all you have to do is believe and then begin to work. But if that's you and you need to believe in Jesus and surrender him today without hesitation, your part is this. Would you just boldly put a hand straight up in the air and say, I need Jesus to be the center of my life today. I don't want to walk alone. Yes, I see you. Anybody else? Yes, yes, yes. Anybody else? Shoot a hand up. Anybody else? Yes, thank you. Yes, 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 yes. Jesus so, so loves you. He loved you preemptively before the foundations of the earth. He gave his son for you. You don't have to walk alone. I want to pray over you, Jesus. Thank you for those that raised a hand. May they yet again, or for the first time ever, offer their lives to you. Lord, we surrender to you. Be, be our king. Be our Lord. Guide us. Walk with us. Walk with me. Oh, I want to give in to that temptation stuff. I want to walk with you with everything in me. With heads bowed and eyes still closed, if you're here today and, and there's been some temptation, you, you're, you're just asking the Lord to heal something or overcome something. I don't want to embarrass you, but maybe you just lift a hand. I want to pray over you too. Yeah, yeah, hands all over. Yeah, you're not alone. Hey, no one's above temptation in this room. No one. Pastor's not above temptation. Pastor's wife's not above temptation. The deacons aren't above temptation. You're not above temptation. Jesus, I pray that we would do the right thing. That when we are in the crossroads, because being in the crossroads of temptation is not sin. Everybody's going to find themselves there. Whether it's saying, it's, 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 it's letting our, our lips drip with gossip, or it's letting our eyes linger 
or making a decision that is not pleasing to you or line up according to your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for our next chance. Thank you, Jesus. And in your own words, you just say thank you for his, his grace on your life. And now we ask for the courage and the boldness to step away from might be draw, what, what might be drawing some in. And as it went with Joseph, so it would go with us that you would be walking with us. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Would you put your hands together for those who made a decision to follow Jesus today?